Hey, so is your podcast, is it free or is it subscriber only? <laughs> it's, it's some, it's really, it's either or basically. Um, I, you know, as long as I defer to the guest, if you want it to be free, we can make it free. If you want it no, to be I don't, I don't care. I just went, I went on Spotify to look at somebody just, I was like, oh, I wonder who he's been talking to lately. And they all seem to be subscriber. I, it's totally fine. I, I, I have absolutely no feelings on this. I was just wondering. So, you know, I, that's something that I found interesting. We might even include this in the podcast because I assumed when I started having guests and I started paywalling that people would be offended, that they would they would want as large an audience as possible. And, and you, if I had paywalled your uh, podcast you did with me, I think you would have had grounds to be pissed because you were doing book promotion. I think that would have been dickish of me to have paywalled that. And so I, of course, made it free. But it's interesting to me that Nobody seems to care. Like nobody, you know, apart from an obvious promotional venture, nobody cares if they're talking to a few thousand of my paying subscribers or if they're talking to everybody. And I I guess that's something that I wouldn't have expected. I would have thought that people would always want to be speaking to as many people as possible. Well, only if you're promoting something. If you're not promoting something, I would say the opposite. Because I, I, this is this is why I feel there is such a dramatic difference between, say, like writing books and writing on the Internet, you know, in the sense that you, know, you write a book, it, it's got to do it's got to be pretty successful to sell uh, you know, 50,000, 100,000 copies. Like that's sort of it's, yeah. it's really unusual if it does. And of course, if you're on the Internet, like when I would write for Grantland, you would sometimes have a story that would be read by a million people. But. Because it was free, the overwhelming majority of people reading that story had no interest in it. It was just something mm. that was there. And you really skews the material. If you, if you start thinking to yourself yeah. that 80 to 90% of the people reading this story or this piece or this idea, um, have, it's only, if, if, it, if it costs one penny, they wouldn't read it. It's only because mm. it's free. So it, it, it's, it does change sort of how, uh, I don't know, how, how you view these things. I, I, in some ways, I'm more comfortable if I know, like, well, the people who are listening to this are paying for it. Like, they want it. But, yeah. you know, it, it, that's not how it usually is, you know? Yeah, I, I feel that way as well. And there's an element of greed as far as why I paywall. But there's this other element, too, where... I would rather have a conversation in front of a few thousand reasonable people who have some investment than with everybody. And I think that a lot of people come on the podcast in a way that this this is almost a very positive way to view it. I think people just want to talk and they want to have good conversations with an audience. And that matters more to them than getting the maximum amount of attention because the maximum amount of attention leads to aggregation. It leads to being taken out of context, and it leads to a conversation that you weren't even trying to have with people who either don't know you or hate you. So I think a lot of the guests I have actually, they prefer the paywall. They feel that they yeah, can be more honest. I would say I do. Well, this is going to be paywall. That's okay. it. You've decided it. Do it again. Do it again. Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars. Winners hang with winners.
This is House of Strauss. I am thrilled, delighted, overjoyed to be joined by Chuck Klosterman, author of so many wonderful books. Most recently, uh, the, most recently, the '90s, which that's my favorite book. I would say of the year it came out, and perhaps of the last five years. And I recommend it everywhere I go. It's just a, a gloriously perfect book. And Chuck, I, I feel like when I had you on to discuss it. Um, we didn't really get into the sports aspect of things, and it's just so intriguing to me to look at how some of the culture has shifted with sports. Now, this is a long windup. I apologize for monologuing, but Go ahead. In, pre in preparation for this, I went back and I watched your interview with uh, the great Colin Cowherd, and you guys were talking about college football. and. It's just such an interesting time capsule to me because there were things I didn't even know about in the recent past of just a little bit over a year ago where Colin was talking about how college football had had a seven-year viewership slide. And you were expressing concern. You know, you're, you're, you're a very dispassionate observer, but I could feel like I could feel you caring about how um, how how college football was sort of losing its its raison d'etre, how L.A. teams were joining the Big Ten or whatever. And it was all seeming so meaningless. And what's been so surprising is that no sport, perhaps, is seeing a rise quite like college football recently, where it is gaining viewership at a pace beyond the other sports, all the while, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, completely whoring itself out. So I wanted to talk with you about that and uh, a, a, an array of other other topics. Uh, so yeah, that's, let's just lead off with that. Are you shocked that college football appears to be gaining while it's rejecting a lot of what has made it loved and getting ever so transactional. That's a, that's a real interesting question because, you know, so often we, when someone in the media particularly is talking about, is this good for college football? Is this bad for college basketball? Is this good for major league baseball? What they're strictly talking about is almost the raw statistical viewership I mean, that has just become sort of the only way we can understand any of this. What is interesting is that I think almost every person who really likes college football is either mildly or significantly dismayed by the direction the sport is going. And yet it, it, its popularity seems to be, if, if not stronger, at least holding on. It doesn't seem to be as fragile as the other sports. And this is partially because, you know, so many of the other sports are dependent on things around them. Like the NBA now is sort of dependent on the non-basketball aspects of its culture to, for interest. Mm. The NFL has all this kind of gambling uh, and, and, and fantasy sports and all of these things. College football is still very much the interest is driven by the product itself. And the product this year has been good, you know? So like when we, we, you know, in a way, what we're really talking about is like the situation in Colorado right now. And that has increased the, the interest in college football. But I think also to, to a lot of people sort of symbolizes this sort of existential danger of what could happen. Um, Everyone is interested in what was going on with Colorado because he basically built a team from nothing. Uh, you know, Dan Sanders comes in there, gets rid of everybody, brings in all these guys uh, through the portal. Um, and, 
you know, they play TCU and it's a close, exciting game. You know, they, they play Colorado State and it's an overtime game and it's it's been real entertaining, which of course draws people to watch this and to follow it. And there's people I think following uh, at least that aspect of college football who maybe in the past you know only cared about the NFL or whatever. But I don't think anybody wants this to be the way it always is. I don't think that it would be very positive if every year Notre Dame has a completely new team and every Mm -hmm. year Miami has a completely new team and every year Ohio State is a completely reinvented roster. It seems like this is on the horizon. This is this is a problem. Um, But what we're actually seeing in the games is still pretty good. This sort of feels like the last year before things are just just completely different. Like it, it is, is odd to me that someone who follows, you know, college sports as much as I do will occasionally be in a conversation with someone who was like, okay, so now is, is Oregon going to the ACC or is it the big 10? Like, like <laughs> these, these seemingly details that I would never, it never occurred to me that there would be a time when I would be occasionally confused about who's in the big 12 or whatever. And I, I, how much of a problem this will be. It depends what you consider to be a problem, you know? Yeah, I think you're making a really great point about Colorado that what might be intriguing as a distinction might not be so great as a trend. I'm reminded of how LeBron James became this. He be, he became the lightning rod of the NBA when he left Cleveland for Miami. And it was something that you just didn't do. You didn't do it like he did it. And then he became, I, w- I don't want to say transactional, but it was like he was renting these teams. And... I remember he did that show, The Shop, and Anthony Davis was there. And Anthony Davis was talking about how LeBron got him to see himself like a human corporation. Uh, And that's how you have to see yourself. And I thought when I saw that, that the league could withstand and maybe even be improved for LeBron James seeing himself that way and conducting himself that way. But once it's Anthony Davis... And once 25 players are handling themselves in that way, it becomes a real problem. So is that, do you think that aligns with what you're proposing might be an issue for, for college football where what's interesting and novel becomes not so great when it's everybody? I think it's more about the fact that what is good for a, a player in the present tense is not necessarily good for the sport, which means mm. that that present tense play, present tense play, or the future the, of the you know, twenty, you know, ten years from now, or whatever, um, could like it, what's what's good for the individual in the short term can collapse the whole thing over time. Like what, what I mean by this is that you know uh, there is it's impossible um, to argue that any individual should not try to get what they can get for their own life. I mean, it's like they have, they have a short window of time to do it. They, they, they can't, uh, a kid, a guy playing in the NBA, a kid playing for Fresno state or whatever, you can't expect them to be like, well, okay, make sure you, you kind of base your decisions on what will be good, uh, for the, you know, the, the kind of the utopian ideal of the sport over time, they got to do what's best for themselves. But, it's it's going to make these things much more fragile. Okay, like okay, mm. like this is I'll try to explain. That. So let's say it was we're in the '90s, and someone brings up the idea of Cal going to the ACC. 
So someone says like, okay, Cal, go to the Atlantic Coast Conference. That would have been completely dismissed out of hand because it's just like it makes no logical sense, right? Why would yeah. a team on the Pacific Ocean be in the Atlantic Coast? It just makes no sense. Okay. So we move forward, you know, a few years. There's been conference realignment. We're in the, you know, 2010, 2015 or whatever. And Someone says, okay, well, I think Cal should maybe go to the ACC. And people would be like, well, it's kind of strange. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Kind of breaks up the tradition of the Pac-12. Plus, you know, it's going to create a lot of complexity for the other sports. There's going to be all these damaging things. What are we doing here? But we keep moving forward in time. And, you know, I'm not one of these anti-capitalist guys, but, like, this is sort of an element of late capitalism. The money is so big. Like, I mean, if you look mm. for a school like Cal or Stanford or SMU, the, the idea is like, well, okay, you can, you can go to the ACC and, you know, over time it's going to be it's going to be a billion dollar industry. Or you can stay where you're at and not only not get that money, but lose four hundred million dollars or whatever. Like, mm. it's just it's purely the amounts now. The amount yeah. of money is so great um, that it. It, it, it ends up kind of overtaking everything. Now, it's not surprising for someone to say like, well, you know, money runs college sports. But it's one thing when the money is smaller and it's it, it's different now. I mean, it is weird to me that to sort of suggest that going to Stanford for free, if you're an athlete, get a free, get a free ride to Stanford, is a ripoff for them, which is how it's mm-hmm. kind of presented. It's kind of presented as the idea that's like if all you're getting is a free education from Stanford, mm-hmm. you have totally been, you know, uh, screwed over because look at the amount of money that this that the you know Pac-12 is generating or something. It is it's just I mean, that that's really the thing. It's it's not it, it's just the, the pure magnitude of this that sort of makes the value of these things so great that we just kind of have to follow that kind of economic trail and this is what makes things fragile i mean like you know so like like the nba or whatever we'll get this deal like they got a a big tv deal coming up and everyone sort of thinks well okay so live events are the only thing that we can guarantee that people will still watch live obviously like you know it's like anything else can be streamed so the value of a commercial in an nba game is going to justify you know given this big price tag and i think right now that's the case but if we keep moving forward in time and the price of the TV deal gets even bigger, and the amount of people who are willing to watch the NBA starts to decrease even a little bit, then everything could collapse. I mean, suddenly yeah. the salaries are completely, uh, like, like the players are never going to, players union is going to be like, we'll take less money because the league is less popular. It's like we are building these things, uh, you know, into like a structure that is bigger, uh, more susceptible to failure. And I, I, I'm wondering how many years it'll be before that happens, but I do think it will happen. I do think that sometime in my lifetime, um, even potentially something that seems as stable as the NFL uh, could be com- completely hemorrhage and collapse. You know? I completely agree with that. And yeah, everything is run according to this embedded growth principle. And then it's, run on presumptive growth. I mean, I've, I've written about the NBA and this TV deal, and it's difficult to predict exactly what it's going to be. But what I can see so clearly is a lot of the owners are not exactly liquid. Every time there's a team sale, it seems that there are rumors and whispers and reports of all the guy had to do and all the assets he had to sell just to be able to get the team. 
And in these sports, the commissioners often want a quote unquote poor billionaire to buy it because that gives them more power. You can't really push around Steve Ballmer the way you can these guys who are uh, barely scraping by among the tycoons. And all of this spending is done on the basis of, well, it is all going to work out. I mean, in winning time, it depicted what actually happened, which was that Jerry Buss didn't really have the money to buy the Lakers. But who cares? They became the Lakers and are worth so much more now. And everybody seems to be making that bet. But you're seeing with the Minnesota Timberwolves, the A-Rod sale is, is held up. And it just seems like there's not a lot of liquidity. The interest rates are high. And it could all work out. And they could sign an amazing deal. But I do think to what you're saying, you do eventually reach the point where it's all a little bit rickety. And you could see... Uh, a, a collapse that would be cataclysmic and completely warp the sport as you know it. Well, this is maybe why you're saying why is, is this college football seem kind of paradoxically in good shape right now? I mean, this is the thing is that, that that is one sport, which is still built on the foundation that like, you know, okay, if there's a Thursday night NFL game and it's 16 to nine, people are like, this is a ripoff. This is terrible or whatever. Mm. But people who are watching the Egg Bowl, they're watching Mississippi State and Mississippi. They're invested in the outcome of that game in kind of in a personal kind of historical way that it's 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 entertaining almost because it exists. Like its existence is part of its mm. entertainment. Um, where these other things, a lot of these other sports depends on, you know, the taste of the consumer. It's it is hard sometimes to um, to get even a serious NBA fan to watch the middle of an NBA game in February. It's just the product yeah. doesn't seem that great. They maybe they're waiting for you know they're waiting for a and it's the Clippers and the Bucks and they're looking forward to it. And then it turns out oh Kawhi's not playing and Giannis is hurt and it's like well this is this this happens if this keeps happening if it, if if we get into this thing where it's almost as if. The, the 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 teams and the players act as if they're a essential commodity uh they at some point will find out that is not the case you know are you fascinated by what i would term the nba's care deficit because you spoke to it right there where because of the aforementioned tv deal you can feel the nervousness emanating out of the nba that they need people as interested as possible until they sign this thing. And the NBA released a report saying that, well, actually, load management, it doesn't it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help. It doesn't work. And everybody kind of laughed it off as it looked like they were trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And now they're they're changing the all-star game. And I remember Shea Gilgis Alexander, young player, was asked at the all-star game what could possibly be done. Uh, to ensure that guys actually try because it had become a joke. And he he said, matter of factly, to pay us, you know, to pay us, give us incentive for it. Um, what do you make of this issue the NBA seems to have where they just need people to care more or to care about things that would have been taken as a given that you care about? It's a strange problem, but it's it is like the problem of pro basketball right now. And, and, and people have talked about this kind of forever. I mean, there was, you know, if we go back to 1980, there was this idea that it's like, oh, you don't have to watch the NBA game. Just give both teams a hundred and give a minute left on the clock. That was a very common sort of pejorative thing to say. So it's not like this is a totally new thing. It just seems so overt 
that like that, that there's, you know, uh, the, the NBA All-Star game to me, there's one detail of this that has always sort of confused me. It's like the one thing we always learn about these NBA guys and pro athletes in general is that, you know, they're supposed to be just these insanely competitive people, the kind of people who like they'll pull guns at each other over a card game. Or, you know, like Michael Jordan cheating Buzz Peterson's grandma in a game of goldfish or like that, that, that they're just uh, uh, consumed with competitiveness. And yet when they're playing an all-star game of the sport they play, they almost seem to go out of their way to show that they think it's idiotic. Like it, yeah. it, it, it's bizarre <laughs> to me. Like, like there, there's a, a part of the culture that's like, it's, I think they, in fact, I remember people saying some irritation with like Russell Westbrook one year for trying too hard in the all-star game. So I think <laughs> it is, it is a strange thing that, that, that there does seem to be a, a belief that, uh, uh, to, to, to play every game and to play hard all the time, the idea of playing an 82 game schedule for a player, like that's just completely off the board. That, that is, it is troubling. So the, what the NBA seems to be doing is trying to be almost make this decision. Like, can we have, a popular league where the games are almost ancillary where people will fall, you know, and they've done that. They've had some success for this because the interest in the NBA in the summer is very often higher than it is in late winter. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, the, the, yeah. like the, 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 the idea that this is like a sort of a, a, a kind of a, a business game that is a, you know, and like, you know, just, that this is something else to follow this new kind of thing to follow. Like I, I noticed that there's a much greater interest uh, in now in say postseason awards than there yeah. used to be like if, if MVP always mattered, but now it's like, it's, 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 it's something to follow that seems to have as much meaning as the games themselves. And, and I don't know what they can do about this. I mean, it's uh, they're not going to shorten the schedule. And if you and that would be one possible solution, but I don't even know if that would do it. I mean, it's it is just it is sort of the nature of how the game is sort of presents itself now. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things like this in life where there are these informal cultural norms, and once they're broken, there's no real easy way to put them back together. And it's just we were all kind of operating according to this premise, and now that premise is no longer and we can't necessarily rebuild the premise and and it just is what it is and i also think culturally there's more latitude for not caring about certain things or being transactional you you wrote extensively about the concept of selling out in the 1990s being a big deal it doesn't seem like it's a big deal right now for instance you know people would have been, they, they would have gotten crushed maybe for leaving their college programs or coaches leaving their college programs. I feel like if, say, Deion Sanders left Colorado, everybody would just sort of shrug and go, well, yeah, that's what made sense for him. And that's, yeah, people, that's I think people expect him to. Yeah. I mean, I, there, I, I saw people online this week talking about how Caleb Williams should shut down the rest of his season because yeah. they have two losses now and he may not, he will likely not win the Heisman now. So it is almost as though there's nothing left in it for him specifically. So he should, he should just stop playing. And, and you know, if, if that happened, it, w it wouldn't be an outrage. There'd be some people who would think it was bad. And there would some people would say like, Oh, it's reasonable. I mean, you know, uh, uh when, uh, 
when Zion Williams got hurt, you know, when he was at Duke and he got hurt, people were like, you know, we got to, we got to, Zion should just shut everything down. I think we're pretty close to getting to the point when there's this idea. It's like, you shouldn't like if to high school kids, like they will tell like a high, I, I can see a high school senior yeah. being convinced, like, do not keep playing the rest of this football season. You're already like, you've already got a deal. You know, it's, it's just, it seems odd. It's that, 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 that we have just, com- that, a lot of people who would view sort of the the monetary aspect of sports uh, or just of capitalism in general as like real, you know, uh, almost repulsive, they sort of look at these athletes and be like, you should be like Ayn Rand. You should be completely <laughs> self-interested. Like your interest as a player should be completely to maximize your value, get as much money as you can in the smallest amount of window. But But of course – that idea when when applied to anything else is is terrible. I mean, it's, it's, I, I I don't know what is, but the thing you said about Dion, that's right. It's like it would not it would not be shocking at all if when his kid goes to the NFL at the same press conference, Dion is with him saying like. I'm now taking a job with the Denver Broncos or whatever. Like the, 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 it's like it wouldn't be weird at all. It it almost feels like it's gonna happen. Like it's like or or yeah. that he will leave the SEC or like I mean because I have I sort of have a, a I don't know if this is original at all maybe everyone thinks this but I I, I feel like I see what's going to happen with college football in the next ten years which mm. is that the the SEC and the Big Ten. And now looks apparently the Big 12 and the ACC. I think those will be the four because obviously the Pac-12 is is going to be nothing now. It's going to be the Mountain West, I think. Is they're going to break off from the NCAA. And they're going to be able to kind of do whatever they want. And, ha- and basically have like a semi-pro a thing where a kid will represent Alabama. Or he'll represent Florida. He won't necessarily even have to go to school there. Maybe some of them will. He'll probably be able to go there for free if he wants. But the thing is, these teams will just basically like like they'll be like like they'll be uh, clubs associated with the university. They'll wear the uniforms and all these things, but they won't really have any collegiate relationship at all. Um, and then college football will just be like the semi-pro version of the NFL. And the thing is, it will work. Yes, if because of the sort of historical relationship, they're really basing this on the fact that the historical relationship people have with college football will remain and continue because kids will keep going to college there. You know, um, now uh, the thing is, it's like, we, we, I complain about these things. We talk about these things being weird. It's like, I have watched as much college football this year as I have any other year. So like it's changing and it's not affecting my relationship to it. If it changes again, it still probably won't. It's just, it's just weird. It's like part of the thing that's, I don't know. It's like, you know, when you watch a college game, there's a, there, there's a, the subtextual thing going on where it's like, you're watching say Kansas and Texas. And in a sense, you are really, what you're seeing in those teams, you still unconsciously connect to the kind of person who goes to that school. You know, it's like like you, you see the 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 that the, 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 there's a kind of person who goes to they or say maybe in a better example of like Texas is playing Rice, and it's like well there's a kind of kid who goes to Rice and a kind of kid who goes to Texas, and yeah. and it, it, it kind of has this deeper resonance than if you're watching say you know 
the Dallas Cowboys playing the Houston Texans, where it's like these guys were just picked to go there and now they pay taxes in this area. It's like there's, there's no relationship to anything else, you know? Well, you're getting at something that completely fascinates me, which is how do these things continue to feel real? And I think what I'm discovering for myself and probably for you is that they start to feel less than real to us probably sooner or easier than they feel fake to other people. And I wrote about this recently Um, in the World Series. We've got a 90 win team. We've got an 84 win team after they've expanded the playoff format. And Nate Silver tweeted that this is the least compelling World Series matchup in a long time, maybe ever. MLB made a lot of great and overdue changes this season, but it's time to contract the playoffs and give the regular season more meaning. Um, A lot of people crushed him for that. I I completely agreed with it because to me, it didn't feel real anymore. I needed, you know, I needed to kind of think that the team that won the World Series was the best team. But then, you know, as a lot of my subscribers were arguing with me, I thought to myself, this is a strange demand on my part. Um, because I mean, the problem with adding all these teams is that baseball playoffs are kind of random. So even if, so what I'm really asking baseball to do, what I really want them to do is to narrow it down to four teams so I can like pretend that the best team won, right? That So I can have the illusion of it that's more convincing to me that the best team won. But ultimately, the fact that this is happening proves that this is not exactly real. I'm not exactly even, you know, generating a question for you, Chuck, other than saying that I think this is the, um, this is almost like the big, this is the big issue with sports is that they need to th- make things that are kind of on their face fake feel real and uh it's not a question well, no, it, just throw that out there this that's a i mean that what you're going to bring up is, is kind of a, a profound thing because this illusionary aspect this this idea of the illusion feeling real is so central to all sports i mean yeah. you know the fact that Everyone concedes the last NFL preseason game is meaningless. It's an exhibition. And then the first game of the regular season is something that like the whole culture gets ready to watch. Like we all, you know, they're both fundamentally exhibitions. Like these are both (laughs) complete constructions, right? Like all all the meaning, the, the only meaning that we have is the ones that we create because of a kind of a financial underpinning that these games are more valuable than these other ones, or that we're just going to agree that this kind of construction matters and this construction does not. Now it's, that's not like a super hard thing for a person to do. We kind of do it in a very kind of, you know, easy way. But what, what you, what you're talking about sort of is how, as we move, like there's certain words that we see just as like almost totally positive transparency. Okay. Same. Make mm-hmm. something transparent. It's better, right? Because you know, it's like the, the, that's the you know, where, where you, you see companies always putting out press releases where they're talking about their transparency and all these things. But it's just it's, it's some things are better if they're less transparent because we need sort of that uh, an opaque element that allows yes. us to project an idea onto this that gives us personal significance. Um, you know, if. If ever, if we were being completely transparent, 
the first thing an announcer should say before the tip off of a basketball game or the first pitch of a baseball game or the kick off of a football game is just like, okay, just so everybody knows none of this matters. No one's life is at stake. Nothing's really going on here. These are very rich people playing for other rich people. You're the product because you're consuming it. So we're just, it's like, like, like if they were really transparent, they would constantly be telling us these things are, are completely meaningless. But that's not how it is at all. They're always like, mm. oh, the Hawks are meeting the Bulls. It's like this is a, <laughs> this could really dictate who's in the play on playing game or whatever. Like, you know, these small things we, we have to we need that pretend element for these things to be fun. And in some ways what these, what the amount of money involved is doing is it's making it impossible to sort of do that. Like the, okay. The illusion of college football. I was just, uh, I rewatched, I was on a plane last week. I rewatched this, this, uh, this documentary about the relationship between Michigan and Ohio state and, you know, kind of going all the way back to the earliest days of you know, the 20th century, moving up until the present, you know, now, you, 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 we look at the past as this, you know, in this kind of romanticized way, but there was, you know, obviously there were all these problems with it, but the illusions there were much uh, more, uh, how would I Vincent? say this? It's like, well, it's like the, um, uh, uh, it was easier to, uh, to sort of, and easy is a strange word because it's sort of somehow it, it, there's negative connotation to saying something is easy, but it's like the, 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 I, the, the amount of money that's involved now, it makes it very difficult to, uh, to see beyond that, to see outside mm. of that, to see that it has, that there's anything else driving it. Maybe that was always what was driving it in the sixties and seventies in a way, but it didn't feel that way because everything was uh, smaller. I mean, I'm not doing a good job of describing yeah. this, but I think people listening to it, I think they're going to kind of inherently understand that it yeah. seems now that like that this, the idea is that uh, you're kind of naive if you don't think of sports as purely an extension of business and entertainment. And yeah. the thing that people love about sports was this thing that's like, well, it applies to kids who are seven and kids adults who are 80. There's like, there's uh. just something else there and all these things. And I don't like the fact that now just even sort of trafficking in those ideas now just seems stupid. Like maybe it is stupid, yeah. but I don't want people to feel uh. stupid for thinking those things. Dude, yeah. you're getting at the paradox of the entire damn thing, which is that sports is the business that needs to be more than a business to be a business. That's it's it's the whole bizarre. Yes. It's obviously a business. It's obviously that uh, people are making money hand over fist. They're threatening cities to build them a stadium or they're going to leave. But it needs to be received by much of the public as having this inherent meaning that transcends and is almost religious in nature for it to be profitable. And it's hard to maintain that when you're trying to be as profitable as possible. Oh, it is, you know, and, and it's. It also like so okay, like you know, we talk about player empowerment. Okay, okay. So let's say we were empowering steel workers. Let's mm -hmm. say there was a big steel worker empowerment sort of movement. Okay. Well, you know, the thing is, people need steel to build things, right? So they see yeah. these people as doing something that they, that, that they see them as creating this product that is uh, kind of irreplaceable. We need steel or whatever. When there's player empowerment, it's 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 kind of founded on the idea that people want the product so much that it is essential that like that they have that they actually have the leverage to make these demands, and I don't know if that like I think 
that for someone my age, in a way, it's like sports have been a part of my life for so long that um, it would be really difficult if it, when even these little changes to college football bother me, obviously. So it's like it's like it's it's, it's real essential mm-hmm. to who I am. I don't know if that's going to continue over time. Like I, mm-hmm. I when I look at my son and his friends and the way they discuss sports, I can see it is different than the way I discuss sports in fourth grade. I can already see that different. It's not just different that they're nine and I'm fifty one or whatever, and w- the two of us are different now. I and my friends were a different kind of nine year old the way that we looked at sports, and they're mm-hmm. and I, they do not see it as um, as important like they, they like it just as much but it's not that they, they're, they're they almost have a a sophisticated understanding of how uh it's like a uh it's it's not a, a like a like a live or die thing um and that's the illusion sports kind of needs sports we have to believe that when the ball goes through bill buckner's legs that something catastrophic has happened if you're a red Sox fan and it's, you have to have that belief like, you know, yeah. and, and I don't know if that's going to continue if we look at these guys as brands of themselves. You know, if it's like it's, you know, you know nobody roots for General Motors. I mean, it's like you, you can't root for a guy if if he's like, I'm the brand of LeBron. That does not compel me to care about it. I mean, then, then you can only appreciate uh, the almost the aesthetics of what he's doing. So like, you know, like, like, you know, it's you, you see you or, or you, you see a guy in the NBA, you see a quarterback or whatever, and you can appreciate their greatness. But uh, it, it, then as soon as that greatness begins to dissipate, then it's like, I have no, it means nothing now because it, it, it wasn't ever important. It was always just a way to consume four hours on a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe. Wembenyana is the perfect athlete for this era then because there's no sense that he is of Texas or fighting for San Antonio. It's more the sense of, oh my God, you've never seen anything like this. Check this out. This is uh, something unlike what you've ever what you've ever witnessed. Um, that's just it a random, awesome. you know. I was watching the game last night and I was like, you know, I was like, well, this is going to be his first game and of, of what does seem he could potentially, I think there's potential there that he could be uh, among the greatest or the greatest basketball player of all time. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but certainly with that, that frame, with those tools that seems to be on the table. Um, but so then I'm watching it sort of like a, uh, I, I'm really watching him. Okay. So the, the, the so the, the, the Mavs and Spurs are moving the ball up and down the court. Lucas out there, Kyrie's out there. There's lots of talent, but I'm just kind of watching this guy because I want to see what it's like. Uh, I, you know, that there's a um, a limit to how long that can last. There's a limit, like mm. how many Spurs games am I going to watch to just watch this one guy? Maybe I will during this year. Maybe I will up into his peak, but at some point his peak is going to go on the other side, and then he just sort of gets kind of cast aside and my relationship to the Spurs had nothing to do with the franchise. <laughs> yeah. I suspect, I suspect something like that could play out. It's difficult. It's difficult to predict. I mean, that's, it's, it's hard when the selling point of a guy comes with, um, comes with this idea that he's just so gigantic because even if it's perhaps amazing to see somebody so large acting in the way a shorter man uh, or or having the dexterity of a shorter man, there's this element of, well, you know, he's really large. He's got this th- this advantage. How wowed am I? How wowed am I by that? You know, how well, no, there, impressed should I be? 
there is a freakishness element to it that, that, you know, that not only is he so large, he's so thin that like, it, it, he it looks, it, it's strange to see him out there. That the fact that he makes a guy who's six ten look small, you know, so that's yeah. very weird, you know, the, his ability to, and you know his deafness with the ball and his ball handling, all that stuff is, it's, it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, shocking, but it's like, it, it's, uh, uh, I, I mean, he'll, he will, the one thing I, you know, we we'll mentioned LeBron earlier. Like the, the thing that I think is underrated about LeBron is that I feel like he might be the only example of someone who came into a sport where the only way he could succeed was to become the greatest or <laughs> arguably the greatest player of all time. And he achieved that. And has had no like Tiger Woods type failure. I mean, that mm. is really shocking. When you when you go through old drafts, old NBA drafts, old NFL drafts, you know, uh, old Major League Baseball, you know, uh, projections of guys and stuff, you know, and and you just you, you find examples like Todd Marinovich, and you find examples of like guys over and over again who, it, or, or like. Ooh, if they were described as potentially like a like where, where, where the ceiling was arguably the greatest of all time, the, the failure rate outside of LeBron is, I think, 100%. So, I mean, yeah. it, is, it is pretty incredible that he has done this. Uh, you know, like if you think of like what's the worst thing LeBron done has done in his career, and it was – he poorly handled moving to the Miami Heat, which he then was successful with. I mean, that's the biggest blunder he's made. I think his blunder is more all-encompassing, and it's that he's cringe. Because what you said is true. It is true. But at the same time, if Tiger Woods, despite this ugly personal failing and fall, if he were to win the Masters, there would be so much more public enthusiasm and joy over that than LeBron winning another championship. And so it is interesting to me that he has fulfilled his destiny, an impossible destiny, uh, and he has done it. But it's also interesting to me that he's almost like a man without a country um, where he, it feels like his personality has worn out its welcome. It feels like uh, the the family guy joke about the Godfather that it insists upon itself that because he had the destiny that you mentioned, because this was promised, he has been inordinately focused on it and trying to sell it to us. And in the selling of it, it all seems very contrived. And I think it wears people out. Stephen A. Smith complains about LeBron's people harassing him and demanding that he elevate LeBron beyond the second greatest of all time and how he's, I believe, yelling at Rich Paul about it and, you know, basically saying, leave me alone. So the LeBron trajectory is um, it's almost like a Greek tragedy, even if it's no tragedy at all. And it's about as successful as you could have expected. He wants this so much that it seems to keep it at arm's length culturally. Okay, but is isn't the fact that like you say his his overriding problem is sort of one of perception? Mm. But what what I say is impressive to him is that if the worst thing about a guy is the way he is perceived, the biggest mistake he's made is an inability to manage perception. Yes, th that's incredible to me. 
because yeah. like there, like there's so in so many other cases the failure is either on the field on the court or uh, a transgressive thing that happens in their life that then alters their ability to be the person they were. I mean, the, the things about, you know, like Braun, LeBron has been criticized for many things, you know, over time. Oh, he's on a, he's on a cover of a magazine with Giselle. And, and, and that, that was a trouble. That was a troubling thing. Or, or, you know, he, he, uh, he, Pretended is, to read takes, Malcolm X's autobiography and got caught pretending to read it. Um, would be sure. another or, one, or, and or, or he'll like he'll that. make he'll make statements about some politics about you know, and then in China he'll like all of these things. These are all of these little things. It's not like it's it's not like he's he it's been flawless, but there has been nothing that has been um, like a, a a serious scandal. There hasn't been there, or or uh, a a a serious on court failure. You know, it's like he's he's played better and he's played worse. He's there's games he should have won, but there, there's it has never been like a uh, the, the the player he still is at thirty nine. It's insane. It's, it's yeah. insane. And in fact, in a way more to me more impressive than Tom Brady in a sense because it's like he is not that far removed from the player he used to be he did, he's a change but not as much as uh, a, a normal athlete changes if they play that late in their career yeah the only real on-court failure was the flame out against dallas but that becomes part of one's arc about how they bounced back and they showed how resilient they were like uh michael jordan losing to the pistons and it becomes this thing that he overcomes. And at this oh, yeah, point, but it was, see, they just so, lost. It's not like he went over 16 in that game. I mean, they just got beat. Yeah. Oh yeah. no. I'm talking about the, the, the Dallas 2010 finals. For yeah. Instance, that's what I'm talking about too. Oh, I mean, they, okay, okay, okay. I mean, they, I mean, that's, I mean, he had a failure against the Celtics, you know, right. It's like, I mean, but, but if these failures, if the failure is just that his team didn't win, I mean, that's a completely acceptable failure. I, I don't. I don't think in, you wouldn't look at that Miami Dallas series and say like, "Well, it wasn't so much that Dallas won this; it was that LeBron lost it." Oh, but that's not for the Heat. That's, you, the, the, you know, the I, I don't he, think that's the the case. You're getting at something though, where it, it is funny. I mean, the worst criticism you can have of him is probably in how he's managed his own reputation and how he's communicated to the public. And that's not really a great sin in the grand scheme of things. But in a weird way, it's the one that we're least forgiving of. I mean, Alex Rodriguez, you could probably make more of a case for he should have had more winning. But it seemed like a lot of the public rejection of him was about being cringe and was about this just sense that this guy is trying to manipulate you and not doing a great job of it. We want to be manipulated by somebody who does a good job of it. Kobe Bryant uh, was not as good as LeBron James is, but he was much better at that. It, it often seemed like Kobe was almost contriving his own myth-making, but because he was giving us the myth-making we wanted and perhaps was giving us the noble lie that we wanted, we wanted this almost a uh, Horatio Alger, this idea that I'm in the gym from, you know, 3 a.m. on every day and I'm working my ass off and I'm, you know, a psychotic competitor. We like that story. He was great at giving it to us. And that's one of the reasons we revere him. And maybe it's more of an NBA thing. I don't know. But there is this demand from the audience to have an athlete manage their reputation in the way that we want. 
It's true, but you know, audiences are capricious. Things that you know, like it, 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 if you if you explain sort of the career that Kobe Bryant has had, I think a lot to someone who knew nothing else about him, they'd be like, "How is this guy heroic?" I think they would, you know. Yeah. But it but it worked out. It worked out for him in a way, and particularly with the end of his life now, and it's, he, he it is almost as if some of the pretty. Yeah, it's like they can't you, but they're just kind of gone, you know, and uh, to the sense that it seems as though in a, in a way, the memory of Kobe is going to be deeper and more romantic than LeBron's legacy. Yeah. And that doesn't make sense. It does not make sense when you talk like it's But because what you're what you're kind of arguing is that there's just you keep using the word cringe. This kind of this amorphous thing. That just that, that <laughs> yeah. we can it's an intangible thing that we can tell about a guy that makes us like him or not like him. I mean, can we say that Michael Jordan was cooler than LeBron? I mean, I know that I'm not the arbiter of cool, certainly. I get it. But just as somebody objectively saying which guy was cooler to the public, they would go oh, with Michael Jordan. Sure. But also like like the definition of of cool has changed. I mean, okay, mm. right now. It's. I think it's pretty hard to argue that if you asked people like you, what, who represents, what's who's the coolest person in the world? It's like, well, Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift's <laughs> popularity is bigger Such than the NFL, point. whatever. Everything about Taylor Swift would have been seen as stridently uncool in the 1990s. Everything yeah. about her, like there, there's, there, there, you know, and and that doesn't the possibility of like. I mean, it's a good thing this this podcast is paywall because just by sort of suggesting that Taylor Swift would have been seen as uncool in the 1990s would get my I'd probably get my house get burned down or something. But it's, but yet is yeah. but that's kind of part of her appeal in a way, whether people admit it or not. To what you're saying is that she's kind of adorkable, right? That she's sort of gawky. That that is part of the over. Uh, dude, I am interested in that. I was fat. I mean, the were you interested in the Eras tour and and why it was such a big thing? I I didn't go. I, I don't have uh, kids who are in that age range, but I I talked to people who went who were so blown away by it, and I I just wanted to know more. I wanted to understand how somebody who isn't revered as a physical performer, right, because they are gawky to what you're speaking to, had this level of performative resonance, and I still haven't totally worked out well, why. I've had this conversation with several people. So she's playing SoFi Stadium and she's playing six nights and everyone's a sellout. And in the secondary market to get the very worst seat, to get the very worst seat to any of these six shows, I think it was $800. Okay. Now the second biggest tour that's happening at this time is the Beyonce tour. And she's playing, I think in New York, the same time, either Jersey or New York at the same time, you know, like the, Taylor Swift show is playing in SoFi. And if you spent $300 on the second market of a Beyonce show, like you're in the front row almost, you're very, you got very mm. good seats. It was almost as though Beyonce, uh, the, the, the Beyonce tour was almost erased by the Taylor Swift tour. It was so yeah. massive. Like, and I, so I was talking about this with other music writers and the question kind of came up. It's like, obviously Taylor Swift is the biggest artist of now. Is she the biggest artist ever? Is she bigger than the Beatles? So we were talking about, could the Beatles have sold out six nights at Shea Stadium? With, you know, they played this famous, you know, show at Shea. Could they have done six nights? 
Well, for one thing, if they would have, the tickets would have been $7 or $4 <laughs> or whatever. But I don't think they could have. I don't think yeah. that they could. I don't know if they could have put six nights at an arena like that. And so, I mean, maybe. Maybe if they had toured following Sgt. Pepper, maybe it would have been possible. Oh, so we have this one person who now might, you know, I think is, you know, quite possibly the biggest artist of all time. And it also has, uh, to me, indicated some confusing things about the U.S. economy. I don't understand how there are so many parents out there who had $2,000 to spend on their kid to go to a, a one-time show. I mean, that, that really, to me, contradicts a lot of what people say about the U.S. economy. Now, granted, mm. these 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 are, you know, you know, there's only, you know, 18,000 or whatever, 26,000, wherever she's playing. You know, it's like you don't need it because there's some people who have that much money. Doesn't mean the whole community does or whatever. But doesn't it seem a little strange that there that there it was so common to hear about? Did you, I mean, did you, or did you, I, I just heard from a lot of people that it would I'm be like, like, oh, you know, that, that I, uh, you know, my daughter wanted to see Taylor Swift and this, this was like, this is our Christmas present, but it's like even a Christmas present, a thousand dollar Christmas present. I don't know. I'm, I'm now racking my brain for that because that's a great, that's a great point. And I didn't even think about, but like mostly because I didn't even know what the numbers were. Um, but that is rather incredible. Maybe there's a market inefficiency where, her songs are pretty adult themed, but they're not dirty. And so maybe this was just the thing in that market. It's something that your teenager likes that you don't feel you don't you don't feel too horrible about taking them to that. It kind of oh. hit a sweet spot. Well, I mean, I mean this is kind of off topic, but this kind of plays into a whole bunch of things. I mean, okay, so first of all, we're talking about using the Beatles example again. There's a say there's a 15 year old kid who, you know, 15-year-old girl wants to see the Beatles it's her whole life. The likelihood that her parents might be like, we want to go too, was <laughs> not possible, okay? Yeah. Because, the, you know, the, there was there was this, you know, this kind of generation gap culturally that basically anyone, you know, kind of existed pre-World War II did not really have a lot of interest in the rock, you know, in the kid's sister. Okay, and now it's very common that, that you know, uh, uh, that, uh, Kid might love Taylor Swift and their parents do too, you know, or, or that a, yeah. uh, someone loves Olivia Rodrigo Rodriguez and her parents do. It's like, you know, it's like these, these things are, are sort of, they, that, that gap is sort of gone. So that's part of it. So maybe the parent can justify it more saying that they want to go as well. Um, also, you know, Taylor Swift now has been uh, a pretty prominent uh, performer now for much longer than the Beatles were. You know, yeah. the Beatles existed for eight years, essentially. You know, it's like she has there are there are there are y young adults who have no memory of music that don't involve her. And she has never kind of like LeBron never had a, a drop off in performance. I mean, there are many people who feel like the music she's making now is better than any music she made in the past. So there's a lot of things playing into this. Uh, but it is it is interesting how just as a figure, she is not. Uh, she, in many ways, is the opposite of what had always been perceived as cool from somebody. Like, there was always a time when, say, Michael Jackson was huge or Duran Duran was huge or Nirvana or any of these things where there was a certain component of people who were like, I don't like the fact 
that this is just that big. Like I'm almost yeah. against the hugeness of this, but no one's against the hugeness of her. They want her to be huger. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you really want to uh, anger potential Swifties behind the paywall, you could make a comparison to Garth Brooks and the album sales of the 1990s. But I don't think it's a Brooks comparison um, because high status people do like Taylor Swift. Uh, by the way, as an aside to those listening, if you want to impress people at a dinner party, um, you can reference Chuck's book and ask them who the best-selling artist of the 1990s was. And uh, you're, you're likely to get a great many guesses before somebody eventually arrives at, at Garth Brooks. Um, I mean, to what you're saying, Chuck, maybe her music is almost the death rattle of the monoculture, that she's the last one. She's the youngest person who existed pre-social media hitting critical mass. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why this is an event where a, a confluence has occurred and it's bigger than big, because you have somebody who enough people had heard about in an era that wasn't so fractured. And now you're seeing everybody come together to, to, to honor it, to celebrate it. Um, do you think that, do you think that there's something to that, that she's the last one who retains that patina of monoculture? Well, I mean, I, I think people crave monoculture. I mean, the, 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 it's supposed to be something that, that you're against, but at the same time, the idea that you have a shit that, that, that you're experiencing something with someone else, you, you see this, like when, uh, you know, a major celebrity dies and there's this outpouring on social media for days. Sometimes that people almost like, well, I want to be involved in this too. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to create a situation where this individual's death in some way involved mm -hmm. my life so that I can sort of share this with other people. All the other things have been so splintered that it's impossible kind of impossible to, to sort of uh, even sort of construct a monocultural event. It's like death or Taylor Swift. Those are the things in the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, speaking of echoes of the monoculture, uh, when you were last on, the topic somehow came up, and, and I was surprised by your reaction, of potential figures that you might have written about but didn't in your 90s book. Because I would have assumed that you would have been annoyed to hear that because you were hearing that from a lot of people that why didn't you talk about this person? Why didn't you talk about that person? But you seemed genuinely curious about who might who who, who you might have perhaps uh, have, have shined more light on. What I'm wondering now is, per our conversation, Deion Sanders, um, is that somebody if you were writing the book today, you would revisit because... He appears to have he appears to be this echo of a of a monoculture of your and might have been bigger than I realized in seeing so many people pay attention to him. I wasn't aware, having lived in the nineties, that so many people were, were were entranced by Dion. Is that somebody that you would revisit well, in light of what's happened? I was a little surprised by what you're saying too. I I I at the beginning of this year, I remember seeing like Fox promos for Colorado games. And I thought to myself, they're wildly exaggerating or overestimating the amount of interest in Deion Sanders coaching this team. And I was wrong about that. The, the, the interest is they, they either, they either made that interest happen or it, it was there. Um, I mean, I don't know what I, what I, I, I could, I mean, I could have written about Deion Sanders, I guess. And then, I mean, that would have been, uh, you know, he, he, he 
the first half of the nineties, he was the most dominant defensive back in the league. I, I, I guess I could have, um, I, I don't think I would, I, I wouldn't write about it now. Like, like if I was doing the book again, I don't think I would yeah. say like, well, I'm going to write about Deion Sanders because he's sort of back in the news. I mean, if anything, that's, I tried so to against that. that's so yeah. against the concept of your book, yeah. obviously, yeah. <laughs> which is, yeah. I mean, I'm talking over you about the concept of your book, but I just, I say it because I loved it, which was how it felt back then, as opposed to looking at it through the prism of what we think of as important today. But part of what I'm asking is, is what's happening today perhaps indicate that he was bigger back then than we even knew? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's like, could he be, have been bigger than we even knew? Like, was was there was there a, uh, an underserved fan base? I mean, he was, you know, he was on posters. He was on television. He was kind of an abrasive character during that period. He's actually a less abrasive character now. Uh, mm. I, I think that... Uh, uh, I mean, it's just, it's always, it's always hard to know, I guess, in a way, uh, uh, what, how someone's popularity in the moment is going to translate over time. I mean, yeah. it is really tough to do because we always work from the position that whatever is popular now, in some ways is like, we kind of, kind of question, like why is this popular? What's making this popular? But then somehow the fact that it's happened is the justification. So like we mm. question, we're skeptical about why it happened and yet completely willing to accept that whatever this, you know, thing we're skeptical of must be true, even if we don't understand it. It wasn't like he was on fate. I mean, it's like, I'm trying to think of what figures in the nineties uh, would be an example of something who, um, who seemed like a big deal. And now like, you know, band like the spin doctors or whatever. Mm. Okay. Like the spin Apple? doctors were huge. <laughs> no, okay. They were this huge band. Um, and now it's not, you know, then they were, they were criticized or hooting the blowfish this is another example mm. of this, that these things that were huge and people were skeptical of, but kind of accepted that they must be uh, significant simply because of the magnitude of their popularity or whatever. And then time moves on and we look back and then sometimes we kind of chuckle at it. And then sometimes we're like, Oh no, I guess that was a bigger deal than we thought, you know? And, yeah. and uh, with Dion, it would have hard. It seems weird to be like, well, he was underrated in the '90s. He didn't seem underrated at all. He didn't seem devoid. He got more attention than most athletes. But you know, did did the memory of him matter more? I don't know. There's could be other things going on here. I'm not sure. I I think he's more. He's like the reverse of your book concept in a way. Where if we were telling the story of Dion, it would be a story of how somebody was almost a proto influencer who was ahead of their time because a lot of what he was doing was this self-promotion that almost feels a little bit more like Jake Paul than it felt 1990s. And he perhaps in an era of the monoculture fashioned a skill set that once he became the coach of this program, um, prepared him to monopolize attention and win the attention economy. And so it's more this story of, yeah, it's, it's, it's more, it's less a story about, oh my God, he was so much bigger than we knew. And perhaps more a story that he was uh, learning tricks of the trade that would serve him later on. I mean, it's possible. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what I, it's, it's, it, 
you know, it, I, I don't really have an answer. Well, like, I, I don't. But, I, it, it's to what you're saying. It's just sorry, I mean to talk over you, but it's just hard to know. It's hard to know, like you said, why things are popular. This is a random association. If someone were to ask me why was Cats popular in the 1990s, what about the 1990s? What was going on that made Cats popular? That's that's one where I just could I couldn't tell you. It just was. Well, yes, or, or uh, uh, that, that. I mean, that seemed to be a prime example that the, the you know what's the main thing that makes something popular? It's pre-existing popularity. <laughs> it's like people keep going to something because other people have gone to it. Um, that, that, but they're like, well, it's got to be something else. There's got to be something else there. Uh, but you know, it, I, I I don't know what it is because we we like to sort of pretend that things are popular because of merit. And yet we also know that's not the case. So we always yeah. got to reconcile. We got to reconcile the fact that like, well, um, we want merit to be the reason things are popular. So if something becomes popular and we don't see the merit, we got to construct an example of what is the merit to this, you know, and that's with cats, I guess, you know, I don't know the fact that, that people still know what it is. Maybe people just like cats, like the actual <laughs> animal. But if you showed it to your, to your kid, uh, if you showed it to your, your nine-year-old, uh, I feel like they would look at it like, what the hell, what the hell is this? It's this artifact of time. But, but when I mean, my kid the, shows yeah. me memes that he finds interesting, I have the same reaction. I'm like, I have no <laughs> idea why this would be interesting to you like, yeah. I, or to <laughs> anyone. So, I, but, but, you know, that's a big gap in time. It's 40 years. So I guess it would be, in some ways it would be stranger if we, if we had sort of the same taste, although maybe not, you know, I was thinking this Taylor Swift thing we were talking about, you know, and I was thinking about how, how there was this idea that say, Oh, you know, Led Zeppelin fans in the seventies, like it's kind of impossible to imagine their parents also being Led Zeppelin fans like this. There was this, this hard generational break or, or in not just in music, but in anything, you know, um, even to a degree with Star Wars, that was the case, that there was some alienation between the kids going to Star Wars in 1977 over and over and over again, and their parents being like, why is this? And now that seems to be kind of gone, right? It seems like the yeah. likelihood of of a kid and his parents having the same, you know, going to the same Marvel movies or whatever, be, that seems part of it or whatever. So now I'm starting to wonder if, like, the the idea of a generation gap, if that was actually the anomaly. If this thing from like 1950 to 1995 or 2000, if that's the weird time when what a kid liked and what their parents like were just completely at odds, because let's say it was 1880, okay? If this were 1880, like <laughs> it would be like, well, me and my kid are both going to the circus. The circus comes <laughs> to our town once a year. It's a big deal or whatever. Or like, or like we're both reading <laughs> Or Ingalls Wilder or whatever. Like, like yeah. maybe it was only <laughs> or, or this period. baseball in, like, the 1920s. You sure. know, it's not yeah. like, what is this newfangled baseball the kids are talking about? Well, yeah. or, or it would be, like, I, 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 would, I, I would wonder if, say, like, say when boxing was the biggest sport. If it's, so it's 1940 or whatever, and it was, you know, into boxing. If people are like, well, adult boxers are into this guy. All the kids, of course, are into this. I don't know if that was the case. I kind of sense that they were into the same guys, that there wasn't this idea that, you know, because the idea of a teenager, that's a relatively new concept. There was always yeah. people who were of the age of a teenager, but like 
in the early part of the 20th century, you were a kid until you got married or got a job, and then you were an adult, even if that happened when you were 11. That was the thing. And then we get into the post-World War II and this kind of create this idea. There's this whole culture of people who are not children, but they're not adults, and they have their own art, and they have their own interests in all these things. And that sort of widened this this chasm between what you're supposed to like as a grown-up and what you're supposed to like as a kid. Now it seems as though adults, I mean, adults read YA novels more than YA people do. Hmm. Like, you know, a lot, a lot of the, the, uh, the, the things that would have once been perceived playing video games or whatever, you know, it's like adults play video games, all these things that at one point would have represented a difference between being a young person and being adult. It's all kind of the same now. And there's kind of a discomfort with that as someone who lived through the other period. But I do wonder if the period I lived through is the one weird period where this is the case, you know, and that maybe moving forward, the, the idea of experiences and values and all these things being more shared is going to be the way it is, you know? Oh, man, that's an that's a fascinating idea. My initial just gut level instinct is that what's happening now is anomalous. But if that's just what it's going to be in perpetuity, it start it stops being anomalous. It, it does feel to me like a function of the adulting era where grown ups have a protracted adolescence that they never let go of and therefore merge with their kids, uh, which to me doesn't seem healthy. But just because it, it might be unhealthy. Uh, it still could be the future and it still could just keep going like that for a long time. And what's happening in some ways is almost weirder than that. I brought up, you know, baseball as this sort of farcical example where uh, a father would see it as this rebellious, crazy activity of his son. Of course, it's not like that. Instead, it's the opposite. It's something that a father and son might share. But that aspect seems to be going away as the parents are merging with the kids on the pop culture. And I don't have a good explanation for, for why the two things are happening simultaneously where you love sports more than your child will. And your child thinks it's weird that you're really into sports, but your kid will go to the same concert that you're going to go to. That thing feels especially um, anomalous and new. Well, no, it, it does. It sort of could, it could suggest that maybe that they're, is something I, I wrote a book called but what if we're wrong in 2016 and i, I kind of talk about this that sometimes i do wonder if sports team sports particularly as a whole um are, are going to slowly start to pers- seem archaic to people but the, 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 yeah. that that sort of the ideas that kind of bind them together and all the things that you know we associate with uh, oh, you know, you know, you, maybe you want your kid to play little league baseball. Why? You list the reasons that are important. What you not just because you love baseball, but you know, a lot of the ideas that are supposed to come with you sports um, are starting, I think, to be seen as like troubling, problematic. Mm. The, the idea of building toughness, the idea you play football to build toughness. I think if you said that, if you brought that up to their parents, they'd be like, "Don't talk to this guy. He's a, this is a, you know." So those things could be could be disappearing in a way. Um, I. Uh, entertain i i I, you know it's like if you if you just if you said these things without any kind of specific examples if you just said like in the future parents and their children are going to be kind of um uh uh, closer they're going to be ideologically closer in what they like and what they enjoy that they're going to be 
that their relationship is going to be more balanced and less authoritarian, all these things. It kind of sounds good. And then when you actually see it in practice, it kind of seems weird. It seems strange in a way, you know, um, I mean, but so like, okay, so my relationship with my son, for example, is obviously a ton closer than my relationship was to his father. Mm. Uh, 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 to my father, like you know, what I'm saying, like, yeah. like, like the our, we're more in the same way that that's closer than the relationship I would have had with my father. In the same way that my relationship to my father would have been closer to his relationship to his father, yeah. going back all the ways. Like you know, you you'll you'll sometimes you'll like see a you'll read about a guy from like the night you know the early 20th century, and he'll be like, my father never hugged me. Like he shook my hands twice or whatever <laughs> in my life. It's like really weird, and of course that keeps getting more and more and more and more. I wonder if there's if there's a point where it's it it can't get any closer. Like, mm-hmm. will if my son has a son. Will his relationship be as close as mine to Mike? Will it be more intense? Will they be? It's will they? You know, I I I wonder about this because this seems to be something that gets smaller with every generation. Yeah, and my instinct is that it's not good, but I can't really prove that. I mean, I do in a way believe in the precept that you shouldn't be friends with your kids that that's not something you should do that the there's some aphorism about those who try to be friends with their kids when their kids will not be friends with them when they're adults but it's not like there's a clear line to me when i'm dealing with my son of you know i I sometimes wonder you know am i am i being too much like his friend uh you know should i I I worry worry about less affectionate it seems weird but it seems weird to do that on purpose like i think that 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 everyone's trying to do the thing that 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 seems natural in a way and it 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 now seems natural and also sort of like just the way society works is to have that kind of relationship with your kids. I mean, you know, there's all of these things. I was talking to a guy at the park the other day, how, you know, we we're talking, of course, he's kind of old men talking about how, you know, we were, when we were young, you know, you could ride your bike and just kind of disappear for three hours and come back later. And that would never happen now. And part of the reason it would never happen is because if something did go wrong, you probably go to jail or whatever. It's like you didn't know where your kid was for two hours or whatever. You know, where that was. I, I, my parents often did not know where I was for long stretches of time, and yeah. it is pretty rare that I do not know where my kid is for a long stretch. <laughs> like it's something like I don't know if there ever has been a case. Um, so it's not just it's not just like the decisions that we're making. It's sort of like how the world is now and what the expectation is. Um, you know getting back to sports for whatever, like when I was growing up, little guy, I was a little guy and I loved the NBA and my dad, my older brothers prefer, preferred college basketball to the NBA by quite a bit. And as I aged, I can't, I I became the same kind of person. And it felt as though Mm. this was something that when you're a little kid, you like pro sports and then you get, you, 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 as you get smarter or whatever, you get into college sports, you know, And, and, they didn't tell me to do that. I just kind of did that. I saw that that was their experience. You know, um, I don't know if younger people would have the same feelings toward their authority figures now. Like, I don't, mm. I don't know if they would think that like, well, this is what my dad, this is how my dad's sort of intellectual trajectory went. So I'm going to mirror that. I don't think they feel that in the same way because they're yeah. sort of allowed, they're allowed to sort of like, you know, we to, to think on your own and be your own person and all these things. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, but they've done studies and there is this regression to one's parents that happens later in life that people do believe is perhaps genetic. So it, maybe that had something to do with the authority you had for your father, but maybe um, it's just you becoming more like him because that's just you, you share a lot in common. I I don't it I don't know. But to what you've been saying before, a lot of how we parent is just dictated by what technology uh, technology allows for us. You know, you know where your kid is. I don't think because there is some shift in the culture, but it's because you can. My mom didn't know where I was for long stretches of time because it you know, made sense that I came home from school and I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, that wasn't common. So I'm just going to be gone for a while. And so we're often kind of grappling with the ability to do things that we are going to do once we have that ability, but perhaps we were never really designed to have. Does that make sense? That's probably true. That's probably, I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I really yeah. don't. I mean, I, it is interesting in the position I get asked to go on these podcasts. People ask me these big questions. I guess I write books about these big questions, <laughs> but I am kind of just guessing. I mean, so, so often we're just sort of like, well, it feels this way. And the studies suggest this. And well, sometimes the feeling is backed up by the stats and sometimes they contradict. <laughs> and what does that mean? It's like, who knows? Well, I guess the last question then, I, I guess I'll invite a guest from you. And you're, you're not going to be held to it, right? Because we had this Taylor Swift conversation about the resonance, but we didn't really look at her from the perspective that you wrote about, say, Nirvana in your book, about what about them was resonating with the 1990s. What is it about Taylor Swift, the content that, that resonated? I don't know. I mean, you know? She's the millennial that worked. All of the things, all of the things that we say about millennial culture in the in, in a positive sense, okay? Because with any generation, there's positive kind of positive characteristics and negative characteristics. She has all the positive ones. Everything that somebody, if if someone tries to convince you uh, of like, the value of that generation, it is completely embodied in her. And you know, uh, you know, you know, you know. Generational talent. I mean, amazing songwriting talent, you know, and and um, somebody who seems to maybe the thing that she has done possibly better than anyone is she has understood that um, that how she is perceived is the reality of who she is, mm. that, that it doesn't matter if she's like, well, everyone thinks I'm a but actually I'm like B. She's like, everyone thinks I'm a I'm a. That's who, you know, it's like, I don't get to decide that. I, I've, it's it, the, the, the transact, like the, the, almost like a transaction with the world. It's like, okay, like I will let you decide who I am. Okay. But in response, and I become that person, you better fucking love it. Okay. You want this, <laughs> you want me to be this way. You want me to act this way, look this way, talk this way, think these things, write these songs about myself. I'll, just, I'll do all these things, okay? But the response is that, like, we're, like, we're in this together then. <laughs> and that's, like, that's her fan base is together with her. Like, she, somebody in the past, somebody like Lou Reed or whatever would say, oh, it's important to occasionally, like, alienate your fan base. It's like, that proves you're an artist. It proves you have integrity if what the audience wants isn't necessarily what... I give them. She does not think that. She is not like I have more integrity if I if my audience doesn't get what they want. It's like my integrity is built on my ability to give them that. You know. <laughs>
I, I think that is right on target. I love the millennial who worked as an explanation. I love the explanation of her so aggressively mirroring her audience and bonding with them as a function of the age. Uh, Chuck, this has been fantastic. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug that you have upcoming? No, I'm not. I got nothing to plug. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> here. Yeah, good. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you swinging by. Check out the 90s if you haven't. It's incredible. Check out Chuck's other incredible books. Thanks so much, man. Thanks, man. Bye-bye.